This episode is all about fundraising in Israel and the United States, precision oncology, machine learning, and deep RNA analysis. In this episode, I have a conversation with Tuvik Becker. He is the CEO of Banchea Biomed and has started, developed, and exited companies in the United States and Israel. Now he is developing Banchea Biomed to start the next revolution in precision oncology. Nothing is impossible. Um, but I think another very important factor is the way uh, this area welcomes uh, immigration and and uh, and many U.S. investors would only invest in U.S. companies. Uh, thought and emphasis, especially by, by uh, budding entrepreneurs, is having a wide funnel. You really have to start with talking to many, many, many. Do be mentally ready to, to, uh, to have a uh, hundred or more uh, meetings in order to get this uh, uh, one uh, initial check. And Pangea's whole approach um, focuses on harnessing these expression abnormalities in order to attack cancer cells and spare uh, normal, healthy uh, cells. So Enlight is able to create biomarkers for completely novel drugs or for drugs that uh, are already, um, that already exist, but have only been tried on a handful of patients so far. Tuvik Becker is a seasoned entrepreneur, an experienced executive, and a strong technical leader who spent the last 20 years building, scaling, and leading companies in the healthcare, financial, and aerospace domains. Prior to his role with Panchea, he co-founded Medware Limited and now serves as its executive chairman. Tubik holds a Bachelor of Science in Mathematics from Tel Aviv University and a PhD in Computational Neuroscience from the Hebrew University. He is also a member of 8400 The Health Network. Founded in 2018, Banchea Biomed is an Israeli biotech startup redefining cancer care. The company developed Enlight, the world's most advanced multi-cancer multi-therapy response predictor. By combining machine learning and deep RNA analysis, the company is mapping tumor molecular signatures to dynamically and adaptively personalized cancer care for a healthier world. Panchea aims to bring effective precision oncology to cancer patients, improve oncology drug development, and empower oncologists to treat patients with success. Panchea is backed by NFX, and its technology has been published in leading journals, including Cell, Science Advances, Cancer Cell, and Nature Communications. In this episode, we talk about the startup ecosystem in Israel, fundraising in the United States from 2000 to 2022, three success secrets to fundraising in the United States, Panchea's Enlight technology, and precision oncology. Enjoy the show. 
the stream gets corrupted. So I started recording on the Zoom server, on YouTube, and also on my computer. <laughs> okay. Uh, it would be a pity that uh, if we... We find out after the conversation that they have no no footage. So <laughs> we'll do it again, no problem. <laughs> it will be interesting to to compare. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, this would be interesting. Uh it's good to see you, Tuvik. Uh, do you do I spell your name right, Tuvik Pecker? Tuvik Pecker, yeah, that's uh, that's uh, right. Spelling and right pronunciation. Thanks, Christian. It, it's uh, really great to be here with you. Thanks for the opportunity. It's good to have you here. Um, I heard from your company in San Diego at the bio. And um, initially, I thought you are US-based. I had a look on your at your website, and it's uh, Pangea Biomed. And there is maybe I can put it up and can, can show you directly. Uh, here's the share screen option. So I was on your website, and it's really well done. It's, it's a great website. I like the structure. I mean, it looks to me like you put the entire pitch deck on the website in a very logical and well-designed structure. And when I scrolled down, um, I saw Massachusetts General Hospital, USC, University of Southern California, uh, National Cancer Institute, MD Anderson. And the first thought I had in my mind is was that you are US-based. Uh, but you aren't. Where are you currently? So currently, I'm I'm in uh, Tel Aviv, and and uh, Pangea is based in in Israel. It was uh, founded in Israel, and it's true that a lot of our activity is actually in the U.S. and and hopefully in the near future in Europe as well, because uh, uh, we definitely are looking for collaborations uh, in Europe. Uh, there's a lot of activity in our space uh, uh, in in uh, in Europe. So I, I misspelled the name of your company, obviously. Uh, it's Pangea or Pangea? Well, it depends. In, um, in English, we call it Pangea. In, in Hebrew, it's Pangea, but mm. uh, Pangea is is, uh, is perfect. How did you come up with the name of your company? Um, well, that, that's, uh, you know, Pangea is the uh, primordial, uh, all-encompassing uh, continent. It, it had something to do with the... Um, the fact that that when we um, try to find uh, solutions for cancer, when we try to mm. um, to um, find vulnerabilities uh, for tumors, we have to uh, adopt a holistic approach. So we look for uh, terms that that would be uh, something uh, holistic and all encompassing. And, and Pangea sounded right, so uh, we, we liked it. That's that's a great thing. Um, you started your company in Israel, Israel, not in the United States. Um, when I look at Israel uh, from uh, from the countryside, I think Israel has about ten million inhabitants. But correct me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. So it's similar size than, like, example, Switzerland uh, or Hungary or Austria in Central Europe. Um, but when I look at the ecosystem, at the startup ecosystem. It's quite interesting because it looks to me it's of similar size like uh, Silicon Valley, for example, in the United States. I see so many companies coming out of Israel. And the interesting thing for me to learn or to hear from you is why Why is that? What's your opinion? Why is Israel so strong in creating startups? Well, it's it's a very good question. I think I'm by no means an expert on the topic. A lot has been 
uh, written about it, and, and uh, there are people who have devoted their careers to studying uh, this phenomenon and, and uh, really analyzing it. Um, and uh, but I can I can give my uh, very uh, personal perspective on why uh, Israel is such a successful uh, startup hub um, and startup community. And and I think some of it has to do with the pretty deep cultural traits in in Israeli uh, society. So one thing um, I think which which is uh, quite fundamental uh, in in Israeli behavior and and uh, education etc. is contrarianism, and and it has very deep roots uh, even in in um, the religious uh, thinking and the way um, the the Bible is taught and, and um, interpretations of of the Bible uh, are taught. Uh, there's a deep trend of argumentation, so you have to present opposing views and argue the question rather than accept a doctrine. And and I think this uh, goes on to these days, and and Israeli schools are are um, pretty unruly places where you're not supposed to accept what the teacher uh, is telling you, but rather to 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 be critical, to raise questions, to engage in a discussion. And I think this is really essential uh, for um, any startup because there are so many unknowns. You have to be very uh, skeptical. You have to be uh, asking questions all the time and, and checking yourself uh, because what was true yesterday may not uh, be true today any longer. So I think this is one one thing which is uh, very helpful. Is for, it, uh, yeah, is it, is it is it really that way that uh, the kids in school are uh, welcomed and invited to challenge the views of the teachers? Did I did I understand it right? <laughs> yes, you did. It, it is well. It it can turn the classroom into a rather unruly place at times mm. <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah it's, it's uh, at least in uh, in the good schools it it definitely is um a welcome attitude and and uh, uh, there's a lot of um uh, teaching of critical thinking and and debating etc and the um, teacher doesn't have a possibility to cancel the kids to just say, so you're out you're out you're out so well, he, the, he, the possibility exists, but but uh, it's uh, reserved for for extreme situations. <laughs> of course, it's not you know just because you uh, you raise an opposing view that would probably not happen if, if you're doing it. You know, if you're disturbing the class, that's something else. But if you're just saying, mm -hmm. well, it seems to me that uh, there's another explanation, for example, or I heard an opposing view, uh, that this is definitely welcome. So the kids have to learn in school then very early to uh, bring up their own point of view, but also uh, to back their point of view with evidence. So it's not just that they can say, okay, teacher, you are wrong. Uh, I have the right opinion. So they also need to learn then uh, to do proper research, uh, to find material and to discuss on a more adult level. Is that the right mm -hmm. perception? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, that that is definitely the ideal. It's not always real life, but... <laughs> In terms of of uh, the culture, it's it's definitely there, and mm -hmm. um, you know, arguing is is very natural uh, for for Israelis. Um, 
Another thing which is uh, quite deeply uh, imbued in, in Israel is, is uh, uh, this feeling that nothing is impossible. Okay, and, and uh, uh, in the IDF, in, in the Israeli military, uh, this is a very, very strong um, uh, trait or, or uh, notion that, that uh, is being taught. Um, and uh, as you know, that there, uh, there are many elite uh, technological units, and this uh, really applies very strongly there. So often young uh, soldiers who just come out of uh, of high school, uh, very talented, are faced with extreme challenges, extreme technological uh, challenges. Not only that, of course, uh, you have the um, uh, physical challenges. You have other ones, but uh, um, I think it's it's especially interesting that um, young people are faced with uh, uh, really demanding uh, challenges, and the notion is. There's no such thing as impossible. You can do it. Find a way to do it. And uh, with, with team spirit, um, uh, you can often overcome things that uh, uh, would, uh, would otherwise seem uh, impossible. And I've, I've personally seen that happen many, many times that, uh, you know, if you don't uh, know or if you don't think, if you don't come with the superstition or with the presupposition that something is impossible it is in, in fact uh, uh, doable uh, and uh, it even happened to me uh, in the past but uh, that, that's a separate story um, and um, I think that the third uh, factor that comes into this uh, success as a startup community also has to do to some extent with the um, compulsory uh, military service, and it's the fact that um, the army brings together people from uh, all of Israel, from from different um, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic uh, backgrounds, and it creates situations where you have to work as teams, and uh, this creates really closely knit uh, social circles, and. Um, it is quite common uh, in Israeli startups that you see a startup being established by a team from the army. And, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a team um, that work together in a technological unit. Oftentimes, it's a combat team where after the army service, everyone went their own way and one became a marketing person and another became a technology expert, etc. But then when one of them has an idea, they come together as a team because they have this background, they know how to work together as a team. And, and uh, this often leads to uh, pretty good uh, startup teams. Uh, so, you know, I'm not sure these are the three most important factors or uh, that, that they explain a lot of the phenomenon, but, but uh, these are definitely observations that I had for uh, why um, Israeli startups are, are uh, relatively common and, and uh, relatively successful. No, makes uh, makes sense to me. It sounds very reasonable. I mean, the first one, I would, uh, if I should give it a title, it would be the search for truth. So yeah. uh, in school, that to encourage kids to learn more and uh, to always find out what's true and what's not true. 
which only can uh, evolve through conversation. Uh, the, the second point was also great. Uh, the attitude in the army that nothing is impossible so that you can achieve basically anything. I think it's very encouraging. And I also agree to the third point that you made, the military service. Um, I think, do, do I remember that right? It's, I think it's two years in Israel and it's uh, every young Israeli has to uh, join the army. It's actually three years. Three years. Uh, oh. Yeah, it, that, that's that's the minimum. For for, mm. for women, it's, it, the minimum is two years, but uh, uh, it's often longer. So uh, uh, kids who want to go to any elite unit uh, would would um, normally subscribe for a longer uh, term service. Uh, they want to become officers. They would serve longer if they want to uh, serve in a technological uh, role. They would uh, sometimes learn initially and then serve longer. So yeah, it's it's a it's a very significant uh, uh, period in in every. Uh, uh, yeah. young person's life in, in Israel. So it's 36 months. I mean, my, my service in Austria was six months, so it was a little bit shorter. <laughs> but uh, I had a conversation recently with uh, Tobias Silverzahn from McKinsey. Uh, we talked about uh, habits and lifestyle habits that are important for entrepreneurs. And it reminded me of my time in the military. And uh, what we were talking about, for example, was uh, uh, why we need sleep. So why sleep is so important uh, for mental health and especially for entrepreneurs then. Um, another thing we were talking about was uh, discipline, habits, um, or nutrition. And it reminded me of my time in the army that uh, these were basically the basic skills that were taught at the army during service. So to get up at 6 a.m. in the morning, uh, to follow um, uh, a certain plan throughout the day to complete tasks and not uh, leave tasks open uh, to exercise, to train. And when you say that uh, basically every Israeli has to uh, attend 36 months the army, I think this is then just uh, the basic lifestyle that people learn over three years. Um, and maybe that also influences then the attitude in a startup. Would you see it similarly or did I miss something? No, no, I, I, I definitely think so. It's, uh, it's really hard to overestimate the influence that uh, the army service has on all aspects of uh, um, Israeli society. And, and, and these are definitely uh, some, some of the ways in which it does. Um, I'm curious about the next point. So uh, there's a lot of training in Israel that basically uh, fosters entrepreneurship thinking. Um, how is it to found a company in Israel? Can we maybe walk it through uh, and take your company as an example? What are the steps that you need to take? Yeah, so I'm, I'm you know, by now it's it's not my first or second or, or even third company. So I'm not sure that would be the um, the best example. But but going back uh, into my first time uh, as an entrepreneur. Uh, it's actually been something very natural. First of all, you see a lot of people around you who do that. So entrepreneurship is pretty common. Uh, many of your friends uh, do that uh, or, or older people that you know um, do that. So um, uh, I think that that um, lowers the, the bar for uh, deciding to become an entrepreneur. Sometimes it, it lowers it too much so it, it seems uh, less of, of no one really prepares you for 
how hard it 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 really is uh, to um, not so much to start a company. That's the easy part, but uh, to to have a thriving company, which is uh, really something uh, pretty hard. Um, but uh, uh, as I said, it's it's um, relatively easy to come up with an idea and then gather a group of friends that would spend some time with you on this crazy idea of yours and basically um, uh, right after the military service so that's usually the age of uh, 21 22 often people go on a long um, um, travel uh, okay long tour around the world uh, right after the military service so early 20s uh, is a time when when um, many Israeli youngsters come up with some idea and then they gather some friends and let's start a company around that. And of course, then uh, it's time to raise some money. So people go and, and uh, talk to investors, talk to angel investors, talk to um, uh, VCs. Often the first money comes from friends and family or small angel investors. And then if, if the idea really uh, holds water and, and uh, continues to develop, you need to, to seek more uh, institutional investment, etc. Um, so I don't think there's one path, there's one way to do it, uh, but it's just a pretty common thing to do. And, and many people try it. Most try it once and, and uh, do not succeed and then move on to do other things. Uh, but some uh, really get uh, hooked on, on this, uh, um, this lifestyle, this uh, um, uh, direction and, and do it over and over again. So. I was smiling while you were talking. It reminded me of my, my first try into the startup, but it was a military startup. It was a spin-off from Novartis, um, which was funded from the first day with VC money because um, the, the let's call it the founder of the department in Novartis was Rodka Novak, who then later on founded CRISPR Therapeutics. Mm -hmm. And when I talked with my friends here in Austria, um, when we all exchanged information, what, what we are doing professionally, and they said, uh, I'm in a new company. And they said, what? Why? Why, throwing, why are you throwing your, your, your life away? Why don't you go to the industry and work in a, in a real company? So it was 2006. So it was a long way back. Meanwhile, mm -hmm. the situation has changed and uh, a lot of money from the government was invested to foster a startup ecosystem here in, in Austria. And I think Vienna and Life Science uh, has become a, startup hub in Europe. How are how is the situation in Israel? Uh, are there similar hubs uh, in Israel that uh, or regions in Israel that are famous for um, fostering the startup ecosystem? Sure, there, there, there are quite quite a few. So Tel Aviv is is obviously the the uh, the biggest and most dense uh, startup hub. There are uh, hundreds of of uh, uh, successful startups and, and probably uh, thousands of, of uh, aspiring um, startups uh, in the Tel Aviv area alone. Um, there are significant uh, startup hubs uh, in Jerusalem and also in the Galilee. There's a lot of uh, biotech and health tech uh, going on uh, in the Galilee, in Yokneam, in, in Komiel, small 
towns in, in the northern part of Israel, and also in the in the south, in, in the desert around uh, Ben Gurion University in in Beersheba. There's a, a lot of activity. So, you know, the uh, I, I would say that um, every big university sprouts uh, innovation, and, and around them you would find uh, people with bright new ideas that uh, want to translate that from basic science into technology, into products, into something that would make a difference in the world. So, uh, uh, you know, it's not like there's one um, one hub, but uh, it's, it's really wherever there's a, uh, there's a good university, there's also a lot of startup activity. Sounds like the whole country. I'm always impressed um, by the people, by the, by the entrepreneurs in Tel Aviv. Uh, the pictures I saw from Tel Aviv remind me always of Barcelona. So beautiful <laughs> beach and uh, great summer, uh, great environment for not working. So I'm always impressed <laughs> that the entrepreneurs then basically sit down. I would rather go to the desert. So it's basically when I want to work, get something done. How is life in Tel Aviv? Well, I, I really love uh, Tel Aviv. I spent uh, around seven years in in, uh, in the U.S. Uh, first in uh, in California, in Palo Alto, Stanford, and then in the Midwest. and And I loved both places uh, a lot. But uh, coming back to Tel Aviv uh, was was uh, really wonderful because I think the combination of a true city that that's alive. Uh, 24 hours a day, uh, seven days a week. Uh, so a, a big metropolitan area mm. with a nice warm sea. It's uh, it's quite unique that uh, you, you you don't find uh, uh, that that combination in in many places. And uh, for for people who uh, grew up uh, close to the sea, I think it's it's hard uh, to live very far away from it or. Uh, also, I, I found it hard to be in uh, Northern California and be so close to the sea, but still not be able to to swim uh, or to enjoy swimming anyway, because the sea is too cold. So <laughs> I think it's, uh, um, it's kind of uh, an ideal combination in that respect. Not in other respects. I, I don't like uh, the weather in, in Israel in the summer, except for the sea. It's, it's hot, it's humid in, in uh in the Tel Aviv area, but you know, you can't have it all. So uh, overall, I think uh, quality of life in, in Tel Aviv is, is really high. So lots of culture, lots of excellent food, uh, a lot of fun. And, uh, and of course, uh, many, many uh, uh, good options for, for doing great work. So uh, uh, the talent pool is uh, really wonderful. It's an, next to none uh, in the world from from my own experience i think if i was in tel aviv i would probably do all my meetings at the beach so having coffee and inviting it, people and we do that we do that pretty often so uh, there are many meetings uh, at the beach and in, in cafes if, if you see the cafes in tel aviv it looks like no one ever works because they're always <laughs> uh, full and uh when, What are all these people doing here? Why are they not in the office working? But yeah, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of work going on uh, in cafes and, and on the beach and in the parks, etc. So yeah, it's uh, it's a lively and lovely environment, I think. 
You mentioned before that you spent seven years at Stanford in Palo Alto. Uh, how is life in Palo Alto? In California? I spent I spent three three and something years in in Palo Alto, and then another three and a half years in uh, in the Midwest. And as I said, I love both places. Life in life in Palo Alto is uh, um, is unique. So first of all, I think Palo Alto has the perfect weather. I, I uh, never uh, was in a place with better weather than than uh, Palo Alto. It has this uh, um, uh, magical microclimate uh, that that's uh, always nice, almost. Um, but of course, it um with with stanford and with berkeley across the bay uh it's an amazing place uh for for good science and and uh and it's an amazing place for entrepreneurship and uh, in terms of funding opportunities uh uh israel can can only dream of of uh, uh the funding opportunities that are available um in uh, silicon valley so you can do everything bigger and faster um on the other hand that the um uh competition uh, for talent is very fierce and and uh cost of living is very high etc so you know it's always uh, it's always a balance but uh, i would definitely recommend uh, to to any entrepreneur to spend some time in in silicon valley or in palo alto is one of the uh, best places probably uh to to understand the way it's done there because uh, th there's a lot to learn from it let me ask you one question about uh palo alto uh your opinion um i mean we have an entire planet with many countries many cultures many cities many universities but uh the area around stanford seems to stand out in entrepreneurship globally so i think there is nothing comparable to to silicon valley and When I was a student, it was in the 90s in Austria, I think it always looked to me uh, that Europe is at par with the United States. So back in the 90s, 80s, 70s, when we look at invention and uh, entrepreneurship and development also of uh, larger corporations, I think back then also a lot of inventions came from Europe. Mobile, for example, mobile industry, uh, Europe mm -hmm. played a pretty, uh, important part in that. And then suddenly it changed. I mean, I think with, with, uh, the 2000s, early 2000s, Silicon Valley simply took off and, uh, no region, in my opinion, uh, can, is comparable to Silicon Valley. Do you have a theory why that happened? Um, what's your opinion on that? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. Well, I, I think um, again, I am no expert and, and only giving my my personal opinions. But uh, one one thing which is quite obvious is is just the amount of money uh, that's uh, that's available that that's seeking 
uh, novel breakthrough ideas to to uh, to back. Um, but I think another very important factor is the way uh, this area welcomes uh, immigration and and uh, and foreign innovation. Uh, I felt it personally when when I was a foreigner um, in in Silicon Valley, and um, I I came uh, to California in uh, 2002. This was after the uh, dot com bubble burst, and it was still very very hard to raise money at that time. Uh, and yet we were uh, we were able to do that. We were quite uh, uh, persistent. In our attempts, we met with lots and lots of uh, uh, investors until we we found one. It was uh, Labrador Ventures, and and uh, I would always cherish their um, welcoming uh, approach. And um, uh, and it was it was nice to be clearly a foreigner and yet uh, uh, accepted and and uh, uh, and trusted. Uh, so I think this openness uh, to innovation um, uh, by foreigners, uh, by people who, who come from other countries is, is important because uh, many studies who, who uh, looked at the sources of innovation, a lot of it is coming uh, from um, immigrants. Uh, I think that this is one of... of uh, uh, the contributing factors, and and uh, um, I believe that the Silicon Valley is quite unique in in this respect. I couldn't agree more. I mean, um, don't know very well the situation in the United States, but in Europe, um, looking at life science um, after Series A, I would say it's it's really tough and challenging to raise large rounds here in Europe. So the usual way for European companies is simply to sell sell uh, everything to industrial partners and start from scratch mm -hmm. um i don't think that there is anything comparable to the u.s capital market uh, in mm -hmm. europe or anywhere in the world um i'm curious you said uh you tried the first time to raise funds uh in the united states in 2002 so right after the dot-com bubble burst um, let's dig a little bit deeper into fundraising in the United States. Uh, how was it for you in 2002 uh, to, to, to go where <laughs> no man went before after the dot-com bubble burst? Well, it, it was very hard. Uh, it, it, uh, it took a lot of uh, um, determination and, and uh, pretty thick skin uh, to uh, get lots and lots of rejections um before someone uh, uh, decided to to take the risk and and uh, uh, back us and, and invest in um what we did um and and it was um a tremendous learning experience not just the uh, fundraising of course but uh, the the whole experience of uh, um that first company it uh, really taught me a lot and, and shaped uh, everything i've done uh, since then uh, to an extent, so uh, as I said, it, it's. Uh, uh, I think it's it's a period that that's uh, uh, very beneficial, and and I would definitely recommend uh, spending some time there. Um, I believe that many European companies want to raise funds in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, 
could you could you give uh, a walkthrough uh what you recommend how they should approach the US market? Uh, is it just get a ticket uh to San Francisco uh <laughs> and then go into the next bar and you will find only investors there? Or <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. I don't think that's the way it is. First of all, I, I think it's hard for foreign companies, mm -hmm. uh, which is different from foreign entrepreneurs, hard for foreign companies to raise uh, money in Silicon Valley. Uh, so many U.S. investors would only invest in U.S. companies. So uh, you, you, uh, my my company back in 2002, it was a U.S. company. It was started in. Silicon Valley and, and it raised uh, local money, although uh, the entrepreneurs were foreign. Uh, so um, going uh, to the to the U.S. to raise money uh, for a European company or for an Israeli company, for that matter, um, is much trickier uh, than than relocating to the U.S. for a few years, starting a company there, and uh, and uh, raising money. Of course, this is more difficult from different aspects and not, not everyone is, is willing to, to relocate, but in terms of uh, uh, raising uh, the money, it's, um, it's much, much easier to do it for, for uh, a local company. And, and some investors are really extreme uh, in that sense. They only invest within their metropolitan area. So I've heard from several investors who said, um, I'm not investing in any company where I cannot go into my car and, visit their offices within 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. So uh, really um, uh, restrictive and, and many investors like to um, to really have that immediacy of, of uh, uh, contact with, uh, with the companies that they invest in. Um, I think in, in Israel, uh, it's somewhere in between because many of the uh, big VCs have branches in Israel that are making investments uh in in uh, the israeli ecosystem and and this could probably be replicated uh, in europe and, and i'm sure it is i i just don't know enough about the uh vc ecosystem in europe but but i'm sure that that uh, from from the little i know um you have that as well um so uh that that is that is of course uh one way of doing that Stay with us. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Um, I'm not so sure you said that the BQCs in the United States have branches in Israel. So they have their offices and they invest directly also in Israel. Yes, that they do. So sometimes, uh, sometimes it's a really separate uh, um, entity with their own mandate. Sometimes uh, uh, it's just partners that that are 
local to Israel and, and the decisions are made together uh, at an investment committee uh, in the US. It, it really depends. There are um, several different models, but uh, uh, many US VCs have realized that there's a lot of innovation going on in Israel and it would be good to uh, diversify investments and, and have local teams here. So uh, that's one way of, of uh, getting to, to U.S. money uh, um, in Israel. It, it's still, it's not exactly the same. So if you look at valuations um, in Israel and, and in the U.S., there is still a gap. So the same uh, VC, uh, you can see a gap in, in the um, valuation given to uh, Israeli companies versus ones in the US. And, and there's also logic beyond, behind that because um, go-to-market is different when, when you're away. So uh, uh, that there are many factors who would affect that, but uh, it, it's definitely a, a good way to, to uh, allow money to, to flow more globally. No, definitely. I didn't hear something like that from, from other European hubs, but uh, maybe I missed also something I would say comparable probably is uh, United Kingdom, London uh, mm -hmm. area, but in Austria, I'm not aware of uh, <laughs> of USVCs having, uh, having their offices in Austria. Uh, we okay. would be very happy. Um, when, when I look at uh, fundraising in the United States, uh, could what you learned in the last 20 years, could you sum it up into three success secrets? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> frankly, <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, no, I, I don't think I could, I could sum it up <laughs> into uh, success secrets, but, but I can, I can, you know, I can probably uh, give some, some points which I found important. Uh, the first, point which is uh i think it's it's uh, uh it's trivial and it's a cliche and yet it's of, often not given sufficient um uh, thought and emphasis especially by by uh budding entrepreneurs is having a wide funnel you really have to start with talking to many 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 investors if you want to um eventually Uh, succeed in, in raising money. You have to meet lots and lots of people. Most people wouldn't invest in your idea, even if it's perfect, even if it's the best idea in the world, um, you know, for many different reasons. And, and uh, you know, the big, uh, uh, the big funds have their anti-portfolios, all the investment opportunities that, that they missed. And then, uh, some of them are, are famous for um, publicizing that. Uh, so it doesn't mean your idea is bad if you get many rejections. Can can we state the yeah. final level a little bit? I, very often when I speak with um, founders here in Europe, uh, it looks to me, uh, from the expectation side, it looks to me like uh, they expect to have five meetings and get uh, the investments done. When you say you have to talk with many, many, many VCs, many, many investors until you get one mm -hmm. um, to invest in your company, uh, Can we nail it down with a number? How many sure, conversations sure. do you think you need to have to get one investor? Is it uh, five conversations or is it 10 conversations? Yeah, okay. So, so that's not the right order of magnitude. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, if it's your first time as an entrepreneur, 
be prepared to talk to over 100 investors mm-hmm. before you get an investment. And, and uh, with, uh, with my first company, um, our roster of, of uh, investors that we actually met with, uh, we had more than 120 uh, meetings before we got an investment. So it's true, these were really uh, tough times. But then again, right now we are also uh, in, in uh, uh, a bit of, of uh, rough times. We uh, are uh, in something that does look like a, a downturn after two uh, quite uh, spectacular uh, years for, for entrepreneurship and for um, uh, VC funding. Um, so yeah, uh, if it's your first time, if you don't know Personally, many investors, if, if you don't yet have a reputation as someone who's done um, uh, this course successfully in the past, you would need to, to meet with many, many, many investors to secure uh, funding. Later on, you can, of course, uh, get it more quickly and, and, uh, and with less effort. And, and of course, there are those uh, super successful entrepreneurs when when they only start a new company, investors are are fighting for uh, the chance to invest in their uh, new business. But uh, that uh, uh, that's a very select uh, elite. I completely agree. After building your first Tesla, probably it's not very difficult uh, <laughs> to raise money when Elon Musk goes on the market and say it to another company. Uh, right. Or probably it's uh, difficult. I completely agree to what you say. So. We have the first success secret be uh, expect uh, to get a lot of rejection, rejections mm-hmm. and speak to, to many VCs and don't give up. And uh, I would say when we put the number on it, uh, expect more than 100, 100 first meetings to get one investment. Yeah, I, I would say that that's a good rule of thumb. Um, hopefully you'd get it earlier, but but do be mentally ready to to uh, to have a uh, hundred or more uh, meetings in order to get this uh, uh, one uh, initial check. By the way, once you have a lead, it's often much easier to get follow-on investors. So uh, uh, there are many who would like your idea but wouldn't have the confidence to set terms for for uh, um, for a round because they don't feel they have sufficient expertise. But if someone else with more expertise in the field would come in and, and uh, set terms, then they would be willing to, to join. So uh, really focus on lead investors. Meet with others, always build the funnel for uh, follow-on investment, but, uh, but focus on the leads. And, and I think that the second thing you, you have to um, keep in mind is prepare for the meetings and know what the investors that you're going to meet are looking for. Okay, so it, uh, it's very, very important to understand where they're coming f- uh, from, what's their investment philosophy, what uh, they are looking to invest in, and see if there's a fit. If there's no fit a priori, maybe it's a waste of their time and, and a waste of your time. So try to concentrate on, on um, investors who really are interested in, in what you're doing, and then try to have good answers uh, to uh, to meet their areas of interest, so so I think that's um, that's the second thing, and and um, 
if you press me for a third absolutely uh, <laughs> okay so um I, I would say that uh at least for me personally it, it's been important uh to not be afraid and, and admit what's still unknown okay because uh startup companies is uh, i always uh think about it as a um as a ship sailing in uncharted territory and and drawing the map as it goes so you have a new idea and and if it's really a an uh an idea with uh, at least a, a a grain of of uh, of true novelty there will be questions which have not yet been answered and you'll have to ask the right questions and and find the answers as you go so you have to strike a, a good balance on one hand you have to convince your investors that you have a clear path forward okay you have thought out well the details of what you're going to do in the next 12 to 24 months let's say mm-hmm. and what's your offering is going to look like etc and how you're going to um uh pass certain hurdles which are uh, sure to be on your way in the uh, short to mid term but then again it's only natural that there would be questions to which you do not yet have the answers that's just the nature of 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 the beast and and i think it's important to admit that to to admit your um limitations in terms of what you still don't know because if you can ask the right questions if you can uh draw the map and and also say here i have a blank area i don't yet know we'll have to get good answers to these two three questions within six months because these are important for our next steps but right now we just don't know okay that's i think that's a very um very credible approach and and uh, it instills more confidence to come up with this approach than try to pretend that you know everything in advance because that just uh, usually it's not true and and it leads to catastrophes if you if you try to stick to your theory uh, when you still don't have sufficient information uh, that's not a good uh, recipe for success so um know enough to to move forward but but don't be afraid to to admit what you still don't know Yeah I think there was a big example recently in also I think in, in California I forgot the name it was in diagnostics uh was a huge blow up um Teranos it was Teranos oh, yeah. not not so recent any any longer but yeah of course uh, Teranos was uh, an infamous example which which has uh, tainted the whole industry for for uh, for a long time and I think we we still Uh, recovering from uh, from the effects of, of uh, that ordeal and i think this um showing that there are gaps and that there are things that the team don't know is also the reason for vcs to invest in the company in the first place so if everything is already sorted out uh, especially in life science um why should the vc then invest in a company so it's uh, <laughs> except it kept scaling but we are talking now about pre-seed seed series a And mm-hmm. uh, as I know from my European experiences, VCs invest in that company to help the company get to the next step and create data along the way. 
So this is mm -hmm. their investment plan. So I think it's a, it's a great approach that you recommend uh, being open with mm -hmm. the reality. Yeah, and in, in general, I think uh, in building a relationship with your investors, with your board, with, with everyone, any stakeholder in, in the company, um, sincerity is, is, is uh, really a top importance. Uh, it's uh, the, the one most important thing uh, to bear in mind. You must be uh, absolutely frank and open. And, and if there are difficulties, uh, you have to to convey them clearly, of course, uh, you know, and, and um, chart a way forward, uh, say how you're going to overcome the difficulties, but but never try to hide uh, the difficulties because uh, that, that's uh, that's really a recipe for disaster. What matters to me most in businesses are relationships basically. And I think lying uh, is something that definitely harms the relationship and makes it more difficult to engage in uh, in anything in future. Um, how do you rate uh, relationships? Um, what's your experience with building relationships during fundraising? Uh, do they matter or are they not so important? Is it more transactional? No, I, I think uh, it's the most important. I, I totally agree with you. I think it's the most important thing not only with um, uh, with uh, investors, it's also internally in terms of uh, team building. I think the most important uh, uh, thing to do is is build a team uh, which is cohesive, which uh, has strong relationship where people really try to help each other rather than compete with it, each other internally because um, it's very, very hard to succeed as a startup competition is extremely fierce and um and um things are very dynamic so you might be on a roll um uh, one day and and two months later you're uh, really in in deep trouble something comes up and and you have challenges uh, uh, you didn't even dream about etc and and you have to be able to uh, survive those ups and downs and uh, they all take a psychological uh, toll. Um, so it's extremely important to build a strong team. And this is true um, for, for uh, uh, the employees, for everyone in the company. And, and it's true also for the relationship with the board and with the investors. So it's important that everyone is together. We are all in the same boat. And we are transparent and uh, we are in it together. And your investors really want you to succeed. Once they, they wrote the check, they're with you. They're, uh, and it's extremely important to align interests with your investors. So think about it uh, all the time. You want to have the same interests between um, founders, employees, investors all have to be aligned and, and working towards a common goal. Of course, easier said than done. There are um, forces that would always create some some uh, some misalignment, some conflicts of, of interest, but these should be um, minimized to, to, to the uh, as much as possible. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The coaching conversation 2024. 
This podcast is 100% dedicated to leadership and leadership within the workplace coaching area. We work with companies throughout the world teaching leaders how to coach their employees. This podcast is dedicated to teaching specific strategies, frameworks, coaching models, and now artificial intelligence strategies to help leaders drive greater teamwork, collaboration, cooperation, greater attitudes, better motivation, coaching career development, just to name a few. I hope you'll check out our podcast. That's true. Aligning interests, I think, is also very important. I had uh, in, in the recording three weeks ago, uh, the podcast is already live with Donna Lavoie. She consults um, life science entrepreneurs in how they should present their company to investors and uh, to industrial partners. And she showed the Vertex Pharma pitch deck from the early days and the mm -hmm. title page. And uh, there was the clear statement, we want to build a pharma company. So we want to make something big. And I know from Europe, for example, there are VCs on the market who don't want that. They just want uh, to invest in a single asset company, move it one step forward, and then sell the technology very quickly to the pharma industry. And when the entrepreneurs and the founders don't address that early on, uh, they risk ending up in a situation where one side wants to build something similar to Vertex. And on the other hand, uh, maybe they find investors who don't want that. And then it becomes mm -hmm. really tricky to move this forward. Right, right. And and I think it's it's really hard to resist the temptation to tell investors what they want to hear. Because <laughs> uh, sometimes you, you meet an investor and, and you have your plan. You want to build your big company and uh, they seem to want something that would uh, sell quickly. And, and I think um, you have to make that tough choice. Either you convince them to go with your vision or you're willing to forego your ambitions and, and go with what they want. But it, it just usually won't work if, if you take their money and, and you hold on to what you wish to do, which is contrary to their goals and incentives that would lead to to strong misalignment and 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 it there would be trouble down down the way and and it's better to avoid it uh, uh, from the beginning and just try to find investors that you will be aligned with and and because uh, otherwise you are funding your company but but you're priming it for failure down the road so why waste those next 2 years just to meet frustration uh, when, when, when it's um, uh, if and when you are successful, that that's really a shame. So spend another three month or or five month on finding investors that that you are aligned with, or just face reality and and change your expectations to to match those of of your investors. But uh, um, if you can be okay with that, no, I couldn't agree more. I think especially when it comes to values and beliefs. Also from the entrepreneur side, I mean, if it's really a calling uh, in an entrepreneur like Jeff Bezos, for example, with Amazon to, 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 to at least try to give it a shot, to try to build something big, uh, I, I doubt that it's so easy to change without significant failure in between. So to just give it up yeah. and say, okay, now I switch. If it's something um, 
that's not a value, for example. Okay, I don't want to, I don't want to move to San Francisco. Maybe but it can be overcome. So move to San Francisco. Why not? I mean, you get money there. It's uh, it's no problem. And when you don't find one in Vienna, also with the VCs, I think when they have uh, they have it encoded in their DNA already that they just don't fund IPOs, so that they want to sell it. It's also very difficult to change that or to make them change. So putting that on the table early on, I think this is the success secret, probably number one of uh, of um, um, early stage companies, seed stage companies, mm -hmm. aligning the interests of the early team is extremely important. Right. So, so you know, I I, I totally agree, and it's uh, it's important to to um, to remind entrepreneurs that you don't need all the investors to agree with you. You need to find one that uh, really um, transmits on, on the same wavelength as you do. Okay, you have to find the right partner for your company. But it's so much easier said than done uh, because after you, you've met with um, 50 VCs and, and heard no 50 times, and then the 51st tells you, yes, but... I have these conditions and these conditions don't really align with, with your beliefs. It's very, very hard not to be tempted to say, okay, we'll, we'll do that. That's, that's fine. And just ignore uh, the fundamental difference in what you want the company to look like uh, three years from now or five years from now and, and what they do. So it's a, uh, it's much easier said than done, but I think it's a, uh, uh, it's a very important point to to bear in mind when when going to raise money for your new company. I agree to what you say. When we're talking when we are talking about raising money, um, two thousand two thousand six were uh, different times technology wise, and you recently uh, raised the seed round with your company. Um, what search strategy do you recommend to? founders, early stage entrepreneurs these days. I mean, the technology level has advanced tremendously in the last two decades. So we have a lot going on on LinkedIn, uh, on the internet. Uh, what is your approach when you uh, try to build your funnel? How do you approach uh, searching for VCs these days? Okay. So, so nowadays, I think it's, it's much easier. Uh, so you have uh, resources like... Uh, uh, PitchBook and, and others that uh, um, provide information on, on a lot of VCs. One tool that uh, I find extremely helpful uh, is actually a, a tool by NFX, uh, which is called Signal, and and it's um, it's open to to the whole uh, community. I think the address is signal.nfx.com or something like that. But if you Google signal and 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 nfx you you'll find it and um it connects entrepreneurs with uh, investors and it has a, a very extensive um roster of uh, investors uh, and many parameters about them so you can look up which areas they've invested in before you can look up uh, the range of of uh, um uh, checks that that they write. What's their sweet spot in terms of uh, ticket size? Uh, what stages 
they invest in. So you can really run searches that uh, uh, come up with investors who are uh, most suitable for what you're currently looking for and, and uh, uh, in, in uh, building the um, lead uh, list for, for uh, our seed round, I uh, heavily relied on, uh, on Signal for uh, building that and, and it's been uh, very useful. Another thing, it also shows you, um, it has this kind of uh, social network uh, feature built in so you connect with people you already know, whether it's investors or other entrepreneurs, or other people which are um, which have Signal accounts, and it shows you what's the introduction paths that you can get to certain investors. So if you know someone who knows that investor, you can ask for an introduction. So I, I think it's uh, somewhat like uh, LinkedIn, but um, specifically useful for investments and and. Uh, has many features that uh, that are very very helpful. In general, NFX has invested a lot in creating tools for um, the startup community. That they, they rely heavily on um, on technology, and, and they're doing a great job in uh, creating uh, tools. Many of them are are internal for uh, the NFX uh, portfolio uh, companies, but uh, Signal is a good example. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. That's a that's a great point. Uh, I was not aware of that. It's uh, there is, I think, a, a similar app with a similar name on the market. It's it's not it's different. Uh, it's not Signal app. This uh, which is comparable to WhatsApp. So it's uh, from NFX yeah. ventures. Yeah, that that's uh, that's something something else. Yeah, Signal is a name used so a it, lot. <laughs> and this one is dedicated to Israel, New York City, Los Angeles, Seattle, San Francisco. Yeah, I, I think it's it's pretty global, but uh, but it uh, uh, you have London there and, and you have Canada, etc. But of course, uh, there's a over representation probably for for uh, US and, and uh, some um, there might be some over representation for Israel because NFX does have uh, offices in Israel, of course, as well as uh, the US. The European, uh, the uh, European Union citizen in me would say it cannot be international because there is nothing from uh, the European Union in there. So it may be a, it's maybe a reason also for our European VCs to reach out to NFX and uh, Signal mm -hmm. and to yeah, definitely. I, I I'm sure I'm sure it can be uh, extended to include many more European VCs. I just imagine that uh, when someone then hears the episode. Listens to the episode and uh, finds in this app and wants to reach out to VCs, uh, works through two or three hundred uh, investors from the United States, and then comes the big day. Um, the first one agrees to a meeting in person. They board a plane, fly over to somewhere in the United States, and then the question that pops up in my mind is: uh, Are there any cultural differences that you see between? Uh, the world in Europe, Asia. So when we look at the Mediterranean area, for example, compared to the US area, is there anything that you recommend to founders who reach out to US-based investors uh, to have in mind when they start with their presentation and when they start engaging with US-based investors? Are there any cultural specific specialities? 
Yeah, there, there probably are. But again, I, I wouldn't consider myself an <laughs> expert on, on uh, cultural differences. I, I would generally... From what you experienced. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, sure. I, I would generally recommend um, trying to be yourself. Okay, so uh, uh, try to be comfortable with the, with the situation and, uh, uh, you know, uh, dress uh, reasonably. Don't overdress. Don't don't underdress like I did today. <laughs> um, but uh, um, just uh, come ready to to really have an open discussion of what you're presenting. So plan on on leaving time for uh, discussion and and uh, um, you know I'm I'm I think at least in the in the US. Uh, they're very used to people from all over the world. So don't think too much about uh, uh, cultural differences. I think it's different uh, in Asia, uh, but, but it's also, it's, it's beginning to change. I've, I've raised money in, in um, uh, mainland China and, and Hong Kong, and, and you see more of a, a global approach now. I'm hearing that Japan is still... Uh, much uh, more conservative and, and sticks to the, uh, their um, uh, habits, etc. But I've never raised uh, money there. And um, with Europe, again, it's uh, we, we are all a, a global village now. So um, meeting with investors in, in Asia and US, of course, Israel and, and, and in uh, Europe, I didn't find something that struck me as really a crucial uh, cultural difference that that uh, should be a major consideration just uh, concentrate on 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 the business on the vision and and on being open uh, for for new ideas and, and discussions yeah i hope it's tasted way that uh, we are a global village uh, and don't go in another in another direction it's really great to see how the cultures merged together in the last uh, one and a half decades. Mm -hmm. When um, I look at your website, let's go to your company. Um, what's the big problem that your company wants to solve? So, so Pangea um, uh, does the precision oncology. Precision oncology is, is really a, a fascinating area. And as, as you As you know, uh, there has been a tremendous uh, revolution in, in oncology over the last 20 years. So 20 years ago, uh, if someone had a non-resectable uh, cancer, so cancer that cannot be just removed uh, completely uh, through operation, if, if it progressed beyond that stage, it was basically a death sentence. So you would be fighting for time, but uh, there was no way to cure people of, of cancer unless you caught it very, very early and then uh, either removed it surgically or, or managed to uh, ablate it with uh, radiation or something like that. Beyond a certain stage, it, it was hopeless. And over the last 20 years, uh, there's been a revolution with... Um, targeted therapies, therapies that target specific vulnerabilities 
that are unique to cancer cells and, and do not occur in, in healthy tissues. And they, uh, these are, are novel generations of, um, of therapies beyond the, the traditional chemotherapies, um, which are sometimes much, much more effective. And beginning around 20 years ago, we've seen cases of people with advanced cancer where um, therapy uh, actually leads to complete elimination of the uh, disease for prolonged periods of time. It may reoccur, but, um, but uh, you can actually uh, get complete remission uh, just by using drugs. And this is, of course, amazing. Uh, but but if we look at, at uh, the situation nowadays, 20 years after these uh, uh, first miracles uh, began to happen, um, it's still applicable to only a very small um, fraction of the cancer patient population. So uh, the current dogma for precision oncology and for targeted therapies relies on finding specific actionable mutations. Sometimes it's different kinds of, of uh, genetic events like fusions or, or uh, translocations, but uh, let's use the, the term uh, mutations. Uh, um, and uh, if a patient is lucky enough to have one of these mutations in his or her tumor, then we can match a particular drug that targets uh, this, uh, this mutation, this vulnerability of the tumor, and sometimes it's, uh, it's very effective. But there are two problems with this approach. The first is that these actionable mutations are actually pretty rare. So in around uh, eight to nine out of every 10 patients, you wouldn't find any actionable mutation. You would find many mutations, but most of them are uh, variants with unknown uh, clinical significance. Okay, so we don't know what to do with them. We know that they occur, but we have nothing to, to offer these patients. And uh, the other problem is, even if you're lucky enough to have one of these actionable mutations found, it's not as if they are perfect biomarkers. So if you'll get a drug matched based on uh, such a mutation, it will only work in some patients, 30 to 40% of the patients. So the bottom line is that um, only five, six, maybe 7% of the whole patient population actually benefit from all these wonderful uh, new drugs um, that have been developed in the last 20 years. And, and this gap is, is, is a huge gap because we found ways to um, to treat cancer effectively using drugs, but we only uh, we are only able to do that for um, a small fraction of the patient population. And the question is, how do we bring it to the vast majority of the patients? And Pangea's approach to to that question is 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 quite unique. So instead of looking at the DNA and and looking for um, the defects in the genetic code, what we're doing is looking elsewhere. We are looking not at the code, but 
at the way this code is actually translated into uh, proteins in the cell. Because when one examines cancer cells, you discover that although cancer is really characterized by uh, mutations, by, by uh, genetic aberrations, the most remarkable characteristic of cancer cells is actually expression abnormalities. So in every cancer cell, you find hundreds and, and even thousands of genes that are normally coded. So there's no defect in the code. The, the DNA is, is uh, intact, but they are abnormally expressed. They are either very significantly overexpressed or very significantly underexpressed. And Pangea's whole approach um, focuses on harnessing these expression abnormalities in order to attack cancer cells and spare uh, normal, healthy uh, cells. Okay, so that's, that's the basic premise. And based on that, we, we managed to develop tools uh, both for improvement of uh, the drug development process, so mm -hmm. uh, develop more effective drugs more quickly, more accurately, and for matching both existing and novel drugs to the patients in, in uh, a more accurate manner. So finding the best drug for uh, each patient in a highly personalized manner. So that, that's the, the story in a nutshell. That's the problem. That's the direction for solution. How, how high is uh, your success rate then in, in finding the right patients for the right treatment? You mentioned before that uh, with this new personalized medicine that appeared two decades ago, uh, only a very, very small fraction, a very narrow fraction uh, of patients qualified for that. Mm -hmm. When companies work with your solutions, uh, do you have a number uh, how much bigger the, the, how should I call it, uh, the success rate then is of finding sure. the right patients? Yes, yeah, sure. So, so, you know, the, the, um, uh, the challenge here is, is uh, measuring it properly and, mm. and uh, finding uh, sufficient data to, to accurately estimate. Um, what we've done, and this has been published uh, in, in top journals like uh, Cell and, and uh, um, uh, Nature, etc., is we looked at retrospective data of uh, <laughs> yeah um uh, of uh, patients who received targeted therapies where there was follow up and we knew uh, first of all which therapy the patient received we knew did they respond to the therapy or not and we also knew the molecular characteristics, so the DNA and RNA sequencing based on which we compute our NLIGHT matching score. NLIGHT is the name of our, our platform, and the NLIGHT matching score is a score that measures to which extent a particular drug um, is expected to be uh, efficacious for a very particular uh, tumor. So All in all, we've done that on around uh, um, uh, 1,500 uh, patients from, from a couple of dozen um, 
different clinical trials where we had this uh, retrospective data. And, and uh, what we see is, is the following, and then that's from many different cancer types and many different drugs uh, that, that uh, these patients uh, have received. So first of all, for over uh, 85-90% of the patients, Enlight um, does find uh, some drugs with a high Enlight matching score. So it almost always finds a matched therapy for a patient in the vast majority of the cases. And for patients who actually received uh, an enlight matched uh, drug, um, the uh, response rates were significantly higher uh, than the baseline in those clinical trials. So um we we published that uh, uh last year in in cell and, and there this year there's been a publication in in uh bioarchive which is hopefully going to be uh, published in a, a top line journal in the next couple of months that that shows uh, that these results hold on a very uh, wide range of of uh, therapies and um, cancer types. So altogether, it leads to a several-fold increase in the number of patients that can benefit from existing therapies. So that's the personalized medicine angle. Thing. But there's also the ability to find the, the right patient populations for novel drugs that are being developed, and that these are collaborations that we are engaged in with pharma companies and, and uh, biotech companies. Uh, it's a great opportunity for me to challenge what I learned about cancer research in the last uh, years. Uh, I remember that uh, to what you said, I remember it was I think, a conversation from a couple of years ago where someone said that 99% of all drug development in cancer fails in clinics. So it's a very, very high failure rate compared to other indications. And one of the reasons um, was... Um, or is still is that uh, when the research, the R&D companies and teams don't find the right patients, then a probably effective and safe drug, relatively safe drug when we talk about cancer, uh, fails in clinics, which could have benefited other patients. So it's really uh, a huge problem in the pharma industry to find the right patient population And when I get you right, it's, this is the problem that you address when we look at uh, companies who are doing R&D in cancer. Did I understand you right? Yeah, you understood uh, perfectly right. So I'm, I'm not sure about the, uh, the exact numbers, but uh, uh, definitely most um, uh, novel oncology clinical trials fail, and they usually fail uh, relatively late. So in, in uh, stages two and three, And, and this is indeed a huge cost uh, burden. And, and, uh, and you, you're correct that they mostly fail not because the drug doesn't do what it's supposed to do. It does. However, um, it's hard to predict which would be the exact patients who would benefit from it and which wouldn't. So we have many new drugs that, that uh, are effective sometimes. 
And if we only knew to better select the patients uh, for which uh, uh, the drugs are effective, we could have uh, gotten approval for them. But if you do an all-comer um, uh, trial, uh, you would often get a low um, uh, success rate and you wouldn't be able to prove uh, any benefit over standard of care. Now, you know, the, the pharma companies, uh, they, they face a dilemma because uh, if you come to them with a good biomarker, you can narrow down the, the patient population, but obtain um, a much higher success rate versus an all-comer trial. Uh, but uh, you, you would succeed in the trial, but you narrow down a priori your, your patient population. So traditionally, pharma companies didn't like uh, biomarker-based uh, trials. They didn't like to a priori and narrow down the patient population. But uh, in recent years, more and more of the trials are actually biomarker-based. And what Tangia offers is a better way more accurate way to develop such biomarkers that would guide the trials. And actually, we are working to expand the patient population because right now many drugs are going into trials based on some genomic uh, mutation. And as we saw, these are uh, not great biomarkers. So you narrow it down to some mutation, you have your 30 or 40% um, success rate within that patient population. But if we were able to say, okay, take only half of the population of patients with this mutation, but there's also a 10 or 15 or 20% of the patient populations without that mutation that you could also target, that actually leads to a larger patient population with higher accuracy. So that's the kind of work that we're doing developing more accurate uh, biomarkers that uh, would allow you both to enlarge your patient population and get um, higher success rates in the clinical trials. And, and uh, we are hoping that uh, this would really lead to uh, more and better uh, approvals in, in the upcoming years. Uh, I hope so, because I think uh, there is only little room for a second trial. So when a clinical trial failed, it's really difficult to, I mean, it doesn't matter if it's in a private or company or in a, in a big pharma company, uh, it's really difficult then to convince investors or also the, the boards in bigger corporations mm -hmm. to reinvest in, in another trial because it was the wrong patient population. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, it's, it's very, very hard to salvage a failed trial. So it's, it's a, uh, of crucial importance to to get it right the first time. Then you can expand to to larger populations, etc. But but uh, I think it it would mean a lot to the whole industry if, if we could get more successful um, uh, first trials. And, and because right now we're losing many uh, potentially uh, beneficial drugs. That's true. Um, when I think about the R&D value chain from um, research uh, in research organizations, doesn't matter if it's universities or if it's uh, pharma companies, um, up to clinical uh, phase three or four studies, um, what is the ideal point to approach you? I mean, you, your team might be a potential partner, as far as I understood. 
for any corporation who is uh, attempting to develop drugs against cancer. Uh, mm -hmm. What is your ideal client in that area? How early can yeah. it be? <laughs> it can be very early. So, so um, and light is is a very very unique uh, platform uh, in that respect. Uh, and and to understand uh, why it is so unique, we'll, we'll have to dive a little bit deeper into the technology. But I can uh, easily sure. describe what's the difference. Uh, so you know there are many um, AI companies out there which are able to develop good biomarkers um, if you have sufficient data. So the normal approach would be, uh, let's say you have a, a, a drug, I don't know, I'm making up a, an example for lung cancer, and you tried it out on a thousand different lung cancer patients, and it worked for uh, 300 uh, of these uh, uh, thousand patients, and, and the other 700 did not respond to the drug. Now, if you collected a lot of data, you collected the demographics, of course, and you also collected, you did um, uh, DNA sequencing and, and you did messenger RNA sequencing to, to measure the expression, the transcriptomics, you can take all of that data for each patient okay, as features for um, um, supervised learning algorithm. And you can take the outcome responder versus non-responder as a label, and you can uh, train a machine learning algorithm, be it a support vector machine or, or a logistic regression model or a deep learning model, depending on your taste and, and uh, the specifics of, of, uh, of the problem. And you can train it to classify patients based on, let's say, demographics plus genomics plus transcriptomics, into responders versus non-responders. And, and you can get really good models that way. But there is a problem. Usually you just don't have that data. Definitely you don't have that data when you're developing a new drug that hasn't yet been tried on even a single patient. But even with uh, drugs that have been, um, that passed already phase one or phase one, two, you only have a handful of patients so numbers are just not big enough to uh, train that type of, of uh, model and, and obtain such AI-based accurate biomarkers. So the uniqueness about what we do in Pangea is um, we actually broke up the, the, uh, the biomarker development uh, process into two distinct stages. The first stage asks a very general question. Basically, what we are asking is, if we hit a particular target, if we have a drug, let's say, that inhibits a specific gene, there are many other genes that have functional interactions with that target gene. And the state of these, uh, um, of these genes, we, we call them the a functional environment of the target gene, the state of this functional environment would determine if the treatment would be more effective or on, on the other hand, they might cause the cancer cell to overcome the attack, to overcome the treatment, find 
other pathways to bypass what we are trying to block, for example. Okay, so our uh, focus is understanding this functional neighborhood of the genes which are uh, the drug targets. And the way we break down the, this question is, first we ask, can we identify those genes which are uh, functionally related in a strong manner to, to, uh, to the target gene? So for any pair of genes in, in the genome, we can ask, are these related in a functional manner? So just to give an example of such a functional relationship, one famous example is a relationship called uh, synthetic lethality. And synthetic lethality is, is a great example of many things. Among other things, it's a great example of how, how biologists give complicated names to simple phenomena. Because it, it simply means that gene A and gene B, none of them is individually essential, but you have to have at least one of them uh, functioning properly. So if you lose gene A, the cell still functions. If you lose gene B, the cell still functions. But if you lose A and B simultaneously, that would lead to, to cell death. So for example, we can find such synthetic lethal interactions and we find them based on um, a lot of in vitro data. Okay, so data from cell cultures that have been subject to genetic manipulations, to uh, drug uh, trials, so adding drug to the dish and seeing how it affects the cells, et cetera, et cetera. And we've got a lot of clinical data. So we have those immense uh, databases of clinical data and in vitro data and phylogenetic data based on which we can find the synthetic lethal interaction and other types of interactions synthetic uh, dosage lethality and synthetic rescue interactions. And we, um, we are able to draw these large maps of uh, functional interactions within the human genome. We call them the uh, genetic um, um, social graphs, uh, so to speak, because uh, they describe some, some uh, relationship between the genes. And the important thing is that this stage does not rely on any information which is specific to uh, to one cancer type or to a specific therapy. So this is the heavy lifting of our AI machinery, and it's not drug-specific nor cancer-specific. And in the next stage, we can look at, at the activation pattern of a particular uh, patient. We can look at their DNA and, and RNA sequencing results. And superimposing that on our pre-existing map of interactions, we can come up with the NLIGHT matching score. And the nice thing is that we do that and we don't need any specific uh, clinical data for the drug that is being um, uh, assessed. So NLIGHT is able to create biomarkers for completely novel drugs or for drugs that uh, are already um, that already exist, but have only been tried on a handful of patients so far. And all of our results in, in the various papers are based on this methodology, which was never trained on the specific scenario on which it is tested. So this is a, a very, very significant uh, differentiating factor, which allows us to really work with um, 
drug developers starting at very early stages of the development. So in theory, you can apply it when the drug is still on the drawing board before a microgram of it uh, has ever been produced and anticipate in advance which patients would benefit from it and, and which. not supposing that you know uh, well enough what genes it's going to target or what proteins it's going to target. I hope that's been clear enough. It's a, it's a, <laughs> a little bit complicated. It sounds great to me. I mean, I think maybe it's a bad joke, but uh, I had in mind it's the matchmaking service then for for, for drugs and patients basically so you can swipe through <laughs> and find the right one. It is, it is in a sense, and, and really Enlight produces reports uh, which scan through uh, um, over uh, 80 different drugs for each patient and, and, uh, um, and uh, they prioritize them uh, by their Enlight matching score. Of course, uh, eventually you have to, to make the clinical decision and, and the oncologist mm -hmm. uh, should take the Enlight uh, report into consideration together with a lot of other clinical information but but i i think it's a um it can be a very useful tool and, and it has actually been already proven um in the clinic we, we've uh, produced uh, and light reports over um the the uh, last two years to many uh patients with with uh, severe and complicated cancers and and there have been quite a few Uh, success stories already and, and each of them is, is really a great joy um, and, and we are about to embark in, in very large scale um, prospective clinical trials with Enlight both in the US together with the National Cancer Institute part of the NIH in, in Bethesda and also in Israel with the Rambam Hospital in, in Haifa and uh, uh, soon uh, We're hoping to to start trials also in in Sheba, which is the largest hospital in Israel, and Hadassah in Jerusalem, which is a, another very large hospital here in Israel. So, uh, uh, 2023 is going to see a lot of uh, clinical trial activity around Enlight. Uh, and hopefully, successful. It would be great to to increase the success rate for both. I mean. Uh drug developers but also for the patients i think this is in the end of the day the, the ultimate goal to help the patients find mm -hmm. the right treatment and uh, successfully fight off cancer right right definitely what what about the the business model in your area uh when if, let's start with drug developers drug development um are you uh, offering your solutions as a service or are you participating in the clinical trial what's what's your what are your thoughts about the business model of Pangea? yes so we, we're not thinking about uh, Pangea as a services company we, we are, the way we see ourselves is is really as true partners for for uh, the the drug developers so we like to uh, uh, take a share of the risk and also uh, a share of the upside um but it uh, we try to be uh, flexible and um and really find the the uh the right business structure uh to to collaborate with uh, our partners whether they are commercial drug developers or or academic institutions we have lots and lots of uh, uh, academic uh, collaborations both here in Israel and and a lot of them in the US and we are now talking to a couple of uh, Uh, European partners. We're looking to establish uh, also research collaborations 
in Europe. Uh, so it's it's a uh, uh, it's it's pretty varied. Um, so uh, really, the, the the idea is to get involved early and, and become um, an integral part of of the uh, drug development uh, process, bringing our uh, unique uh, capabilities to to this uh, process, and and hopefully uh, significantly improving the results. So you become a long-term partner then of the development um, in the development process. Yeah, definitely. On, that that's the approach. On one hand, on the other hand, um, I hope I understood it right from your explanation. You might be also a potential partner for cancer hospitals who have uh, cancer patients in the hospitals and mm -hmm. want to screen the market for uh, the best solutions for their patients. Um, what is the mo what what are your thoughts about the business model in that area? Mm -hmm. So. Uh, I, I right now we are offering this service completely pro bono, mm -hmm. so we're not performing the sequencing um, uh, ourselves, but uh, we are happy to run an enlightened report for any patient who has already undergone uh, RNA sequencing and, and uh, potentially also DNA sequencing. But uh, it's it's the uh, mRNA sequencing that that's the essential and, and unique uh, um, data source for uh, the Enlight analysis. And, and we are doing it uh, for a while now in, in Israel and, and uh, we've recently extended that uh, to, to the US. Um, and as I said, we are um, expecting to, to begin a large scale, uh, clinical trial around that, uh, together with the with the NCI with the National Cancer Institute, uh, um, uh, in the fall, um, and eventually, I, I think there is a huge commercial potential there, but but we're not there yet, and and uh, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't like to speculate on what exactly uh, the monetization model would be around that. There there are many different ways to to go around it, it's very important for us to bring this solution uh, to the market because uh, you know beyond its uh, its obvious uh, economic value, uh, it's first and foremost a solution that can really uh, make make a significant impact on on patients' lives. So I'm I'm sure we'll find a way to also uh, make money out of that. Uh, down the road and, and we're definitely looking at different solutions but uh, let's first uh, get it uh, uh, out there and, and get uh, and many patients uh, tested and, and uh, uh, prove the value at a large scale and, and I'm sure that the economic success would would follow eventually. That's true. That's true. What about what about your team? Uh, how big is uh, Panchea currently and uh, who are the team players? Okay, so so Pangea is is around uh, twenty people uh, at the time. We're still uh, a small company, uh, but uh, we we have a very very unique and, and uh, a very strong team. Um, uh, the the company is uh, heavily oriented uh, towards R and D, so uh, most of the team is uh, a very very strong. Um, uh, R&D team and we have uh, um, uh, many PhDs and, and uh, uh, master degree uh, holders uh, both in biology 
and in computer science, machine learning, uh, data science, statistics, etc. So we span um, a range of, of uh, uh, specialties that that uh, cover um, uh, precision oncology from from multiple uh, angles, and, and we've been really fortunate to uh, to recruit such uh, wonderful people. And uh, it's uh, I think it's really the most important thing for uh, for Pangea to be able to continue to recruit such uh, such amazing people to our team. Sounds sounds amazing. Sounds amazing. Um, we're coming to the end of uh, our conversation. Uh, let me ask you two final questions. Uh, one is, what do you need currently? What are you looking for? What is your next step that uh, someone from the audience might help you with? Well, first of all, uh, every uh, startup company needs more money. It's it's uh, it's trivial. It's obvious. <laughs> uh, we will uh, we will need more money. By the way, we. we uh, we haven't released that yet, so I won't provide too many details, but I can tell you that we've uh, recently increased our uh, seed funding by, by another $5 million, uh, bringing the, the total raised so far to, uh, to over uh, $12 million. And um, this, this was important for us, uh, especially right now, because as, as I said before, it looks like we are... Um, uh, during a, a somewhat of a downturn in the economy, no one knows how long it would last. But uh, it's not as easy to to raise money uh, uh, today as as it was uh, six or, or nine months ago. So this gives us a um, uh, really nice uh, uh, security and 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 safety net, and enables us to continue expanding. Uh, for, for a long period of time. Um, and uh, the other thing that, that we are looking for, we are looking for uh, collaborations. And so especially uh, to the uh, uh, European audience, we, we don't have as many European collaborations uh, right now as, uh, uh, as we would like to have. Uh, and, and we really are looking for uh, partners in Europe, both uh, hospitals and, and uh, universities and of course uh, uh, pharma companies so uh, do feel free to uh, to reach out we're actively seeking uh, collaboration with uh, organizations from Europe and uh, we would uh, we would love to to discuss uh, the possibilities of collaboration that's great so my final question is uh, you're an experienced founder and uh, you've built multiple companies to success and uh, also are now in the process of uh, building the next uh, great company in the life science industry. Uh, when a young founder approaches you, a first-time founder approaches you and asks for advice and you only have one minute to give one advice, what would it be? <laughs> well, first of all, I, I, I usually try to have more than one minute. <laughs> uh, so I, I I don't believe in in uh, in miracle answers and and really uh, every case is different and uh, uh, the challenges that uh, uh, every young entrepreneur uh, or beginning entrepreneur doesn't have to be a young um, uh, faces are 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 different. Uh, so I wouldn't try to to come up with a one size fits all. 
advice that uh, entrepreneurs are are always uh, welcome to uh, to get in touch and and I I try to to uh, find time to uh, to meet and, and discuss and uh, hope to, to to the limited ability uh, I have. That's a great answer. Dubik, did I miss anything? Is there any topic open that you would like to talk about or any question that you want me to, uh, want me to ask you? No, it's, it's been a, a pretty long uh, <laughs> meeting and, and very enjoyable one and, and definitely uh, a thorough one. So um, I, I, I would really like to take the opportunity to thank you again for, for uh, inviting me on, on, on this podcast and, Uh, it's been wonderful. Uh, thanks a lot and, and keep on this uh, wonderful work. Thank you very much. I enjoyed the conversation as well. And it was great having you on the show. I wish you and your team uh, success and uh, luck in the coming years. And I'm pretty sure that you improve cancer research. I hope so too. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye. Bye-bye, Christian. Bye. Did you enjoy the episode? Then please subscribe and follow the channel.